Epcot has always been my favorite theme park at Walt Disney World. It's Disney's second theme park in Florida, and it really consists of two major parts. Future World showcases science and technology. There you can take in ideas of space travel, what your imagination can achieve, our relationship with the environment, and so much more. The second part to Epcot is World Showcase. 11 pavilions that represent countries from around the world. There you can take in the histories and cultures, the food, the drinks, the music of all types of nations. But despite my huge love for World Showcase and for Epcot, there's one huge glaring flaw to it. It doesn't really represent the world. My name's Josh Taylor. This is the world that never was. A six-episode look at some of the things that Disney never built and why. This episode, we're looking at Equatorial Africa, a pavilion that was supposed to go into Epcot's World Showcase. There were sketches, models, there was even a television advertisement, but it was never built. And why wouldn't you want to build an African pavilion? It only makes sense, right? Well, it's complicated. Alex Haley, I presume? You presume correctly. Welcome to Equatorial Africa. Well, thank you very much. Uh, am I too early? About a year, but it's always nice. That voice is Alex Haley the author of the 1976 book Roots, the saga of an American family, which went on to be adapted for television in 1977 with record-breaking audiences of over 130 million viewers. Going into the early 1980s, when Walt Disney World was building Epcot, they couldn't think of a better person to represent African culture and to showcase what the new African pavilion would become. So here he is talking about the new Equatorial African Pavilion with host Danny Kay on the Epcot opening celebration special. I know you've been a consultant to uh, World Showcase since the beginning, so you must have a pretty good notion of what we will all expect to see when the African Pavilion opens. Well, for one thing, we plan to show the beauty, the drama, the energy, the diversity of this amazing continent. Well, who should know better about that than the author of Roots, huh? If I remember correctly, Alex, Walt Disney was the one who said, I would rather entertain people and hope that they learn something from it. And I think you agree with that. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, that's the theory behind all these other pavilions that are soon to open. Sir, it was an honor, and I am very, very proud to have talked with you. And I will be seeing you soon. I think I can find my way out myself. You think you won't need a guide? Uh, not this time. Maybe next time. We'll see you in about a year. Did you hear that last little bit? I'll see you in about a year. That was the scheduled plan. Epcot opened on October 1st in 1982. An Equatorial Africa Pavilion was supposed to open within the next year. The original Epcot World Showcase had nine pavilions. Those countries represented in the pavilions were Mexico, United States, Canada, Japan, China, Germany, Italy, France, 
and the United Kingdom. Look at that list. Everything is from North America or from Europe. And only China and Japan represent Asia. Nothing from South America. Nothing from Africa. How can you have a world showcase that doesn't fully represent the world? Equatorial Africa was supposed to fix that. The pavilion would have had live music. It would have had shops. It would have had a restaurant. It would have had two shows. And it would have incorporated animal life to some extent. I got a chance to talk to my friend Mike McBride from another Disney podcast, Radio Harambe, about animals and about what we may have seen in the African pavilion. There's a lot of nature, let's put it that way, within the pavilion itself. You know, the walking path with the, with the animal sounds, which Correct. they've sort of copied now at the Animal Kingdom. The, right. the, um, the waterhole show. I guess 3D ish kind of show, yeah, yeah. Which sounds pretty awesome in its own right, sort of. Um, I mean, those were, it was very animal centric. The, the, By the way, the Mike and his brother Dave run Radio Harambe, a podcast, and they also run jomboeveryone.com, a website about Disney's Animal Kingdom theme park, the fourth and, at least for now, final theme park at Walt Disney World. Its focus is mostly on animals. And they do have an African section of the park that goes by the name Harambe. Harambe has a marketplace, it has a safari attraction, and it has a Lion King show. But it's not the Equatorial Africa pavilion that was promised for World Showcase at Epcot. So I asked him about Harambe, about incorporating some of those world cultural ideas some of the foods and drinks and entertainments that would have gone into that World Showcase pavilion. The expansion into the evening hours, they've added a handful of new entertainment acts. There's the Caribou Sisters, who are like this acapella group. There's the Harambe Stars, this sort of uh, Harlem Globetrotters of soccer, where they come out and do soccer ball tricks and stuff like that. So, And there's always been Barudica and the Tam Tam Drummers. So they, I think they have added entertainment to the point where it's sort of putting you a little bit into the culture of that portion, the East, Eastern Africa. It's more Eastern Africa than Ecuador. I think in some ways Mike believes that Harambe and the Africa of the Animal Kingdom Park really makes up for the lack of Africa in World Showcase. And yeah, sort of, but it's still called World Showcase. It's still supposed to represent the entire world. And the Africa of Animal Kingdom came nearly a decade and a half after there was supposed to even be Equatorial Africa. So what really happened? What went down that changed everything? That took all of the models, all of the sketches, all of these things that Alex Haley was telling us? What happened to all of it? The best answer I can give you in two words is political warfare. At this point in time, you had wars all over Africa. Uganda had its own civil war. Kenya was in the midst of the Garissa massacre. Ethiopia was at war with Somalia. There was the Western Sahara War. 
There was political upheaval in the Congo. Chad was at war with Libya. The list just goes on and on. So what do all of these wars and political problems have to do with a theme park in Florida? A lot, actually. The beauty in World Showcase is that it creates authenticity among these pavilions. And Disney felt that the only way to do this was to reach out to these governments from other countries, to ask them for their advice. In some cases, for even some of their people to come over to help build, for a monetary donation, and to create some sort of cultural exchange program. You would see people from that country come over and work in the pavilion of the country that they're from. It's a really great concept when you go to Epcot and you go to World Showcase and see this. You get to talk with people from Germany in Germany, talk about their culture, talk about what they see from their country. And you get that hands-on idea of authenticity. You get to touch the buildings, you get to smell the smells. You get to taste the food that comes with that country. World Showcase has some of the most authentic food from these countries that you may never be able to taste outside of those countries. But in a continent that was corrupt with politicians, had wars going on everywhere, there was just no way that Disney was going to be able to reach out to one government and have enough time to sit down and chat about what a pavilion would look like where the money would come from, and the time frame that it would get built in. Disney was worried about political upheaval. They were worried about leaders being overthrown. And they were worried about good people and good governments turning bad. No one wants to be associated with the bad guy. I got to talking with Adeline Medeiros. She lives in New York and works as a social worker. She also has many friends that are native Africans. And she also considers herself a political activist, trying to help those in need and those who may not have a voice in the rest of the world. I don't know if the model has changed, but the idea that Disney would put up half the money and then the country would front the other half kind of puts an interesting socioeconomic lens on it. When you're talking about more impoverished countries that have more immediate needs for their people, and does that mean that their story doesn't get told because they can't help pay to tell it in America, in Disney World, in this particular way? So there's sort of another interesting aspect to it, how the socioeconomic reality comes into play and which stories are getting told. Money is also really important to this story. And it's the biggest flaw that I find in the Epcot model. The idea that a country has to chip in money to build a pavilion at Epcot's World Showcase. It feels unfortunate. There won't be a representation of so many cultures. They'll never be seen because they don't have the money to put into World Showcase. At the end of a lot of these African wars, we saw countries that were left battered and broken, more than better off than ever. And Africa seems to be in this rebuilding stage. And yes, in some cases there were a few countries in the continent of Africa that were doing quite well in the early 80s when Disney came knocking. In particular, South Africa. South Africa's economic status 
was pretty good. But South Africa in the early 80s was also in the midst of a United Nations ban due to apartheid or segregation. There was a white South Africa and a black South Africa. And Disney didn't want to take the money from South Africa because of the United Nations and because of the probable backlash that they would get. Here's Adeline again with another great point. They ran the risk of creating a beautiful pavilion that idealized a country that had these current issues that we had in our immediate past. And so I think that, you know, had the, ch- the opportunity to potentially anger civil rights activists or on the other side to validate some of the racist and segregationists that we still had here in our country. So it was kind of twofold, you know, it would have been really difficult to do it in a way that didn't present a rosy picture of a country that was very similar to where America had been just a few years before and where we still were in large part. So not only is money a factor in this story, we also would have to look at the social impact of what this African pavilion would give us. Funded by a white government in South Africa, a white government that was oppressing its own black natives. And you can't help but conjure up the history of segregation in America. It had only been a decade or so prior that we had gone through ordeals of abolishing segregation. The Disney company couldn't take what they were offering. So with wars and money and apartheid, Disney didn't want to get their hands dirty. And I don't blame them, honestly. But one of the things that really still bugs me is instead of using that land for something else, they made a smaller, tinier piece that they funded themselves, and they named it the African Outpost. The African Outpost is a very small walkway surrounded by a couple of drums on either side and a kiosk where you can get a coca-cola maybe a pretzel and a beer on the other side of the bridge across from that kiosk you find a little shop a man maybe whittling away some wood selling a few trinkets that's it there's no shows there's no restaurants there's no culture to be seen except for this one man making wooden pieces you have an entire continent completely represented by this one man just whittling away so we established that the african pavilion could never be built in 1982 and the african outpost was supposed to save that land for future development maybe to see the African Pavilion finally come to Epcot. But looking at it now, looking at today's society, what would we want from an African Pavilion? The two countries I thought would really work to represent Africa were Uganda and Ethiopia. I asked my friend Mike from Radio Harambe. I would love an Ethiopia Pavilion. I mean, when you think about just that country people don't really know it so much but yes it's the birthplace of coffee ethiopian food itself is very different and i love it i don't know if you've ever been to an ethiopian restaurant i'm a big fan delicious delicious but not only that but it's it's the cradle of civilization it's where they found lucy the first human 
fought back colonialism and was an independent country for centuries. So Mike really loves the idea of Ethiopia, and it would make sense to build an Ethiopian pavilion, not only because of its rich history, it's also one of the only countries in Africa that was never colonized. It is strictly African natives. There's no European presence or Asian presence there. Addis Ababa, the capital city of Ethiopia, has become the economic and political capital of Africa. Since the beginning of the new millennium of the 21st century, it's seen a growing economy. Not first world, but a growing economy. It's a place full of cultures, both new and old, and I think would be an interesting adventure for many when walking through an Ethiopian pavilion. But what about a much poorer, much different place like Uganda? I think the, the end game for us is to, to build as many leaders as possible and to provide as many services as possible to see families empowered. I, I'm really passionate about seeing the orphan cycle broken down in, in Uganda, at least in my community, um, and then countrywide. Um, and I think once families are empowered and leadership uh, leaders are developed, then all of a sudden you're, you're going to start to see this place changing huge. And so, When I thought about Uganda, I actually thought about a friend of mine that I hadn't seen in years. I reached out to him over Facebook. Over the last decade, He's been working with a company called Come Let's Dance. It was a documentary crew that, instead of capturing everything on film and then walking away, decided to put down their camera equipment and do something about it. They wanted to showcase what was going on in Uganda. What ended up happening was that they would spend three months out of the year, every year, going to Uganda, creating relationships. And instead of just giving them money, they're teaching Uganda's self-efficiency, self-sustainment, so that when they do leave, they can be better off. They can do their own farming. They can create their own governments. The country already has a rich culture. They just need help. And so I got into a conversation with my friend Jeremy Smits. We talked about Uganda. We talked about what he was doing there and the people that he sees on a daily basis. I think the biggest thing is the relationships piece. I think that we live in an extremely cold culture. At least that's been my experience of, of living in the States for the last 28 or so years. Um, and here, uh, it's so warm and everybody's um, just interested in your life and whether or not you're on a taxi or in the market or um, just even walking down the street, uh, you have opportunities all the time to have conversations with people that you may never see again, people that you've never met before. Uh, and so, and so I think that's, <clears throat> that's one of the biggest things. Uh, people are just so welcoming and so warm and they want to be a part of your life. And it's um, no bull crap. I think a lot of times, even if you're pursuing relationships with strangers in the States, a lot of the time uh, those, those few minutes shared end up being uh, very surface and, and, um, not intentional at all, but here people I think are really genuine about um, relationships and about um, getting to know who you are, even if it's just for a few minutes. So um, that's really the reason that I stuck, have stuck around for as long as I have. When we finally got to talking about Epcot, talking about a possible Ugandan pavilion, we talked about the perception of Uganda and the people there. 
We talked about what the rest of the world thought and maybe the perceptions that they wanted to get rid of. Just the the story of, of Uganda and for its dignity is I think that uh, East, I, I would say just Africa in general, I guess, but Uganda, because that's what I know, um, they ha- are really well known for a, a war that had happened for about 25, 30 years in the north um, where children were being captured by rebels and um, they're really well known for poverty and a lot of folks think that Uganda is actually the epicenter for the HIV AIDS pandemic and um, and so in a lot of ways I think Ugandans when they see Americans coming here even they think well okay like the only the only thing that anybody knows about us is um, all of our tragedies and um, the only reason that they pay attention to us is and come and visit us is because of those things or for the zoos or the, the game parks. Jeremy has been living off and on in Uganda for the last decade, and that's what he had to share. The sadness, the pandemics, the diseases, the problems that went with Uganda. And in truth, I called him because I don't know that much about Uganda, and I wanted to learn more. I'm glad that I had the conversation with him, but I came to realize that we truly do think of Uganda or some of the other third world African countries. From what we see on television, you know, those send a dollar a day kind of campaigns with starving children, those images of people who look so ill that they're almost dead. But Uganda has a lot to offer. The only part of it is that they don't have the money. I thought about it. Why couldn't Epcot change their model? Why does a country have to put up the money? Maybe there's an IOU kind of situation. Or maybe they do it out of the goodness of their hearts and the idea that putting forth a Ugandan pavilion or even an Ethiopian pavilion would attract tourism to that country and the money that would pour into their economic system would move on to other neighboring countries and so on and so forth. Could that be a way to go? Because there is so much more than this like third world image that we have of it that's portrayed in American media. So I think that would be amazing to have a more nuanced, fuller picture of a country like Ethiopia. Understanding, of course, that while promoting a country within Africa might have trickle effects of supporting the country surrounding it, increasing tourism, increasing understanding, cultural exchange, that one country can't be can't represent a monolithic view of the continent. So as long as it was done responsibly, ethically, um, in a nuanced way, in partnership with countries, even if not financially, I think it'd be a great idea. So my idea seems ethical. It seems probable, right? A company puts up some money to raise awareness about another country, bringing tourism and economic value to that country. Adeline thinks I'm right. Adeline thinks that Disney should do it. They should bring that awareness and economy over to Africa. But is it ever going to happen? I asked Mike. I think they should do it, but they'll never, ever do it. Not a- just because of money? Yeah, just because of money. What's well, I mean, When you think about it, why would they ever add another World Showcase pavilion? There's really no reason to, uh, unless they get a deal with the country to, to pay for at least half of it. 
I just don't see them ever doing that. Like the tourism's already there, so yeah. they don't need an extra one. What, what do they, need? they already have enough restaurants. They already have enough bars. I mean, I suppose they could add a restaurant or a bar or something. But I, uh, I just don't see them building a new pavilion without the backing of another country because it's really not worth it to them. In my mind, I don't think it would be. So I've got Adeline looking at it from a social perspective, from a world economy perspective. And I've got Mike looking at it from a business perspective. Both have very different answers. And that's the sad part, is that there's no real right or wrong answer here. There's business involved, there's politics, there's money. Building an African pavilion would put a lot of strain not only on the Disney company, but on those countries that would be brought in to help. Who do you even bring in? It would be a major challenge. But one of the things that I thought of when making this show and asking these questions about is it ethical or is it probable, I went back to that interview with Alex Haley and Danny Kaye. Walt Disney was the one who said, I would rather entertain people and hope that they learn something from it. Maybe you remember that piece from the beginning of the show as well. The idea that we're not only being entertained, but we're learning. It's what Epcot is built on. The idea that we're always learning about new technologies and science and cultures from around the world. And we're always gathering information from asking questions, or hearing, or seeing, or tasting, or smelling. I remember asking a question in high school, in my world history class, of why we learned so much European history. We hardly ever focus on Asian, or African, or South American history. And the only time that we get to the North American history is when we learn about the US. I don't even know about Canada or Mexico coming out of high school and they give you a diploma, as if you're ready for the world. Epcot's World Showcase to me was always a place to learn more, to be understanding, and to try something new. To allow yourself to be not just a citizen of whatever country you're from, but to be a global citizen. Someone who thinks that everyone around the world is a brother and sister to them in some degree. I think that's what the idea of World Showcase was. But somewhere along the way, it got tainted by this idea of money. This idea that this country's government puts in a little bit of money and Disney puts in a little bit of money. And I understand the ideas of authenticity and why it was done. But I think we live in a different world now. And the ideas of an African pavilion that were once lost because of political warfare because of segregation, those ideas are gone. Much of Africa is on the mend. And the business models of decades past don't work in the 21st century. So I'd love to see the change. I know it's not coming. I know that Epcot is still gonna get millions of people coming through its gates. And they'll be engulfed in the richness of Japan, of Canada, Mexico, Germany, Italy, but maybe it's just me thinking out loud, hoping and wishing that one day we finally get to see a world showcase that truly represents 
the entire world. Make sure to check out network1901.com to see pictures, videos, links, and more information for all of the episodes to the world that never was. Before we end this episode, I want to thank Adela Medeiros, Mike McBride, and Jeremy Smits for sitting down and talking with me. If you're interested, and I very highly encourage it, check out Jeremy and Come Let's Dance. They're an organization that you can spend some time learning about or donating to at comeletsdance.org. You can also check out Mike McBride on his podcast, Radio Harambe. You can also check out the podcast and everything that they do over at jomboeveryone.com. There you can learn about everything Disney's Animal Kingdom, as well as see some of the conservations that they're linked to. And if you're interested in supporting animals, supporting endangered species, you may want to donate to them. If you're interested in continuing the conversation about Epcot's Equatorial Africa Pavilion or anything we discussed on this episode, you can send me a tweet at Network1901. And if 140 characters isn't long enough for you, then you can send me an email at network1901 at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you, and thank you for listening to this episode of The World That Never Was.